What an introduction. What an introduction. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be here. And yeah, it's, uh, it's different. The uh, New York Stadium was a bright, shining beacon of the football dreams of a town. And, uh, and here we are. But it's great. God's at work and uh, he promises to be with us here and now. So uh, as we turn to God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's, uh, that it's true. Thank you that uh, in a world where so many people have got a version of the truth, a story to tell, that you have given us your story in your Bible, that it's about Christ, uh, and that we find as we look at him in your word that uh, you speak to our souls. And we pray that you do that powerfully today by your spirit. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, greetings from Sheffield, by the way. Um, it's great to be here in Rotherham today. Um, thanks for having me back. I hope I can come again sometime if I don't drive you too crazy for the next half hour or so. Uh, so the last in our sessions in the Nicene Creed, in particular looking at uh, really just the last couple of lines of the Creed, which say, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It's talking about something we're looking for, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Don't you notice that in the creed as we've been reading through it? We believe in, we believe in, we believe in, we believe in. And at the end, all of a sudden, we look for. It's talking about something that we're waiting for, something that our eyes are focusing on. We're all familiar with the saying, seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. You know, this idea that if you want to check if something's true or not, you go and you look with your eyes and your eyes will confirm it or possibly uh, not. The idea if we want to check that something's true, we need to go and look at it. Um, And we kind of take that to be common sense. And of course, there's a lot of truth in it. But there is a problem with saying that seeing is believing. And that is because as human beings, we never just see. We never just see We're not like these kind of flat mirrors that reflect back to the world an exact image of itself. You know, we're not like computers which just get data in and just kind of like machines do it. We are always interpreting what we see. In fact, if we're like a mirror, we're like those funny wibbly-wobbly mirrors that you get in, what are they called even, you know, fairgrounds, you know, old-fashioned fairgrounds where it makes your face all a funny shape and skinny people look fat and fat people look skinny and everything is all out of shape. Now, I don't think that seeing is believing is the whole story. No, we don't believe what we see. More often than not, we see what we believe. We see what we believe. Have you ever tried to give a a child uh, a new item of food that the child hasn't tried before? And uh, you say to, and this is like, this is your favourite food. I don't know, maybe your favourite food is, what's your favourite anyway? Your favourite food. And you want to give the child your favourite food. Say, eat it, it's delicious. And, you, and what you see is this delicious piece of celery. Is anybody here's favourite food celery? No, not mine. But I just want to pick an item of food I'm fairly confident a child wouldn't like. So imagine your favourite food is celery and you want to give the child, say, it's delicious, look at it, it's delicious. And the child sees the most indigestible, horrible, disgusting looking thing he or she ever thought. And it's like, mm, mm, mm. And you kind of wish, you know, you know, if the world kind of went as it should do, 
The child was saying, I understand, I need to try this and then I'll be able to sort of say if it's delicious or not. But we believe, no, we see what we believe. You know, a child, when he looks at a piece of celery for the first time, doesn't see a delicious, potentially nutritious vegetable, just sees a horrible, disgusting, green, stringy lump. And who can blame him, really? Paul wrote this letter that we just had a little excerpt written off. Uh, and what we see in the excerpt is that he lived his life through what he believed. And he had an amazing life, Paul did. Uh, you can read all about it if you read the book of Acts and if you read his letters especially. And he was able to live this amazing life because he was anchored in the truth of the Nicene Creed. He was looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And we saw that in that section. Paul experienced every kind of hardship you or I could imagine. He was tortured, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, cold, hungry, sick. He was let down by his friends. Uh, He was hurt, he was physically and emotionally battered. And almost certainly by the time he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's he's an old man and he looks a mess. And yet, did you see how that section started. Um, He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is what he says, for our light and momentary troubles. This is a man who describes torture, uh, hunger, false imprisonment, as a light and momentary trouble. How can he do that? I don't know if you've ever read those kind of verses before. How can Paul do that? And that's because seeing is not believing, but rather believing is seeing. I don't know how you view your life. Um, I want to suggest this afternoon that we can have our view of our life completely turned upside down by having our view of reality turned upside down, transformed. How does that work? Look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, We live by faith, not by sight. Paul says that his faith, that what he's going to look at something which is going to tell him what is real and what is true and what is important and what is permanent and what is eternal and what is going to make a difference. And that changes everything. Everything he looks at in his life today, everything we look at in our lives today can be completely changed. From the most painful hardships, from the greatest moments of our lives to a boring, drizzly, damp Monday morning in Sheffield. In Sheffield, Monday mornings are always drizzly and damp. I imagine in Rotherham, usually the sun is shining. Um, but nevertheless, whatever the weather on Monday morning, you and I can set out on a wonderful adventure. Paul describes himself in chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 8 as confident. You see, he says that twice. Therefore, we are always confident. And then verse 8, we are confident. Despite being a physical wreck, Paul is confident. He's undaunted. He's irrepressible, he's robust, he's an adventurer. Why is that? 
because he fixes his eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. He lives in the hope of the spirit which has been given to him as a Christian, which guarantees what is to come. So how can we have Paul's perspective, Paul's confidence? How can we have his courage, his good cheer, his joy? Well, the big picture this afternoon is by training our eyes to look at our lives the way Paul looked at his life. By being anchored in the truth. By having been filled with this hope of the Spirit. This uh, afternoon we're going to look at what that hope is and how the new eyes it gives us changes our lives. So what is this hope? Well, it's the hope of the Spirit. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 5 in particular. It says this. It says, Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has given us the Spirit, guaranteeing what is to come. And what is to come is this hope. Well, we have this hope of what is to come. And the first thing the hope of the Spirit is, is the hope of a new body, from God. The hope of the Spirit is the hope of a new body from God. What in the Creed is described as the resurrection of the dead. Paul, in fact, says that this is what we have been made for, that moment when we get a new body, the resurrection of the dead. He says, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. God has fashioned us for this very purpose. So I don't know if someone said, what purpose has God made you for? I don't know what your answer would be. There's lots of answers you could be, you could give, and I suspect there are lots of answers that could be good answers. But I'm telling you that if you're a Christian, God has made you for the purpose of receiving this new resurrection body, inhabiting that new resurrection body. That's what he's done. These bodies that you and I walk around in are not it. It's probably better news for some of us than for others, right? Okay? But these bodies are not it. Let's have a look and see how Paul gets there. In chapter 5, verse 1, he describes, Paul describes his body as a tent. And what do we know about tents? Paul knew a lot about tents because he made tents, okay, just in his spare time. He was a very, very productive man. And tents, we know, are flimsy, they're breakable, they're temporary, they're not meant to last forever. No one, no one buys a tent and thinks, I'll stay in this until my retirement, you know. They buy a tent expecting, over the years, it to get battered around and eventually, you know, big holes appear in it and poles snap and stuff stops working, the water starts getting in. Paul describes his body as a tent, an earthly tent. And he says it's being... Destroyed. Did you see that? We know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. Paul's tent, Paul's body, like ours, is one day going to be destroyed. And in fact, the word that Paul uses that we see in our Bibles as destroyed might even be better translated as taken down, dismantled, piece by piece. You know, when you take down the tent, you, you know, you take the, the pegs at like. I'm not a camper, okay, right? I don't go camping for pleasure, but I've seen people do it, and, you know, on the TV, in the warmth of my house, and they remove the pegs one at a time, you know, gradually the tent is dismantled. And that is what 
is going on. And that makes Paul groan. Did you see that in verse 4? For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. It's difficult. Our bodies are not, you know, they're not permanent. They're like tents. They get blown around. But it doesn't make Paul groan because he hates his life, but because he is longing for the new body that he was made for. He was longing for the new body. He wants what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. I love that verse. I do. This is my, I've got lots of favourite verses in the Bible, but this is my new favourite verse. Verse 4, We long to be clothed with our heavenly, heavenly dwelling, that's a new body, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Like a little fish getting swallowed by a big fish, you know. Totally taken over by life. A new body. And what's the new body like? Well, it's not like a tent. It's different. It's made by God of heavenly materials. Look what he says in verse 1. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Okay, so it's not made of, I don't know, it's not made of animal skins or whatever tents are made of. It's made of heavenly materials. God himself gives it to us. So it's perfect in every way. It won't decay, it won't break, it won't get sick, it won't fall to bits, it won't die. It's immortal. Verse 4 talks about what is mortal being swallowed up by life. Our current bodies are mortal. They have a sell-by date. Eventually they die. Our hearts stop beating. But our new body is life. It's swallowed up by life. The life of the new body is immortal. So the hope of the Spirit, which God has given us already as a deposit, is the hope of a new body. And yeah, that really does mean eyes, teeth, brains, skin, legs, arms, fingernails, the lot. This body that is coming will clothe us in heaven. And this music stand. Is now too high? Perfect! This body will clothe us in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that that day is coming. Verse 5. And that Holy Spirit within you, if you're a Christian, is longing for your eventual renewal. The Holy Spirit is calling out for that day. He's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And all of creation is looking forward to that day. So we have that hope by the work of the Spirit that God has given us, who's already in us. So, the hope of the Spirit is this hope of this new body, a change on the outside. And that's later. That's to come in the future, if you're a Christian. That's coming at the resurrection of the dead, which Paul is looking for. I don't know if that excites you very much. A long time, particularly when I was a new Christian especially, I kind of thought all that stuff was just a bit weird really. New body, you know, what is this? But I think that actually it should excite us, the Christians. I think if it doesn't, it probably means a couple of things are going on with us. First of all, it might mean that we kind of forget that actually our bodies matter, that we are physical creatures, you know, and our future is eternal and our future is going to be in bodies. 
You know, we are not going to become this kind of, I don't know how you might imagine it, but like these kind of vapours, you know, these sort of bright little bits of cloud in vaguely human shapes. That's not the future. The future, we don't know the detail of the heavenly body, but it's in a body. You know, eternity is what we are built for and we will need a body which is fit for eternity, which isn't going to start breaking down after three school years and ten. And it's going to be great. It's just such great news, isn't it? It means in eternity we'll be able to taste things. I don't want to be a cloud. Clouds can't taste food. In eternity we'll be able to taste every delicious food and all to the glory of Jesus. And I think that is such great news. And I think that the idea of a new body which we'll have for eternity should excite us. If it doesn't, it probably means that we've forgotten how fat and juicy and delicious and wonderful the idea of eternal life with God is in the presence of Jesus really is. There's that. The second thing that it might alert us to if we're not excited is that we're not recognising reality, which for all of us, whether we're young or whether we're old, whether we feel the effects of, of sickness and suffering or whether right now we don't, the reality is that even now we are being dismantled like tents. Every time, I don't know. I don't know what proportion of dust is made up of human skin cells, but, and I've, I've researched it, and lots of people say different things. But quite a lot of dust is your skin, and it's just kind of coming off. Just slowly, you know, we're all dying. It's happening. The dust in the sunlight reminds you, you are being dismantled like a tent. The scars on your body remind you, you are being dismantled like a tent. The aches you feel, whether you're young or you're old, tell you, you are not built to last. The way you have to squint when you look at the words on a page tell you. Every time I have to put these glasses on to look at some words in my little Bible here reminds me this body's built to last. And there, there will never be a day when I don't need that now. My eyesight is definitely going to gradually get worse until one day I can't see at all with this body. The loss of acceleration when you turn on the football field. You know, when you're... When you're 18, you could turn on the sixpence and you would be motoring off in the other direction. Easy. You get a bit older, you find that you have the turning circle of a JCB and um, you can't do it. The pain you feel when you hit your elbow, you know, ah, that intense pain or your knee tells you you're being dismantled. But if you're a Christian, you've been given the spirit as a guarantee. And the Spirit guarantees that the aches will stop and the scars will be healed. And you and the Spirit and all of creation is looking forward to that day. But the hope of the Spirit at work in you isn't just the hope of external renewal later, though that's great news. It's the reality of inward change now. The Spirit has already been given us. Did you see how Paul said that in um, chapter 5, verse 5. I've lost my page, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that's where he says it. The Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's like the builders come in, and one day he's going to make over the whole house, but he's in, and he's a busy builder. The Holy Spirit is at work. So because of the Holy Spirit in you today, if you're a Christian you can have him at work in you today, preparing you, getting you ready for that day when you are entirely made over. I think that is especially the case through suffering. 
So the hope of the Spirit is that the work has begun through suffering today. It's begun through suffering. Let's have a closer look at what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. He doesn't give up. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Outwardly wasting away, inwardly being renewed. And what is Paul looking at? What is he fixing his eyes on? That inward day by day renewal is the work of the Spirit. And it's carrying on, even though our bodies are getting hit from all directions. And it's such good news. It would, be, it would be really great news, and this is true by the way, if Paul was saying, the Spirit's at work in me day by day, renewing me, making me more like Jesus, and I know this despite what's happening to my body. That's true, and it's good. But the whole truth is even better than that. Because look how Paul carries on in verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The troubles that Paul has experienced are achieving something. Eternal glory. They kind of contribute to the weight of glory that Paul will experience. Do you notice how he talked about how his body right now is burdened? You know, we have heavy burdens on us at the moment, but a weight of glory, a burden of glory is what that is achieving for us. Weight of burden today, weight of glory in eternity. Do you see what that can mean as we look at our troubles today as Christians? When we suffer, especially when we suffer for being Christians, when the life of the Spirit in you means that your body is bruised and battered, your prospects get brighter. The future gets better. When you look at the surface, you see disintegration, things falling apart. But the inner reality, which you can look at with the eyes of faith, not sight, is that the opposite process is going on. Not disintegration, but renovation. Not death coming to swallow us up, but life coming to swallow us up. Daily renewal, the work of the Spirit, is achieved through suffering. The tools that the Spirit uses in our lives are our momentary troubles. They are the things that are achieving the eternal glory. And in fact, they do a good thing for us today because they renew us today by pointing our eyes at what is real. They are the things, our our troubles, which give us the eyes of faith, which move us to look beneath the surface of things. People looked at Paul and they said, look at this guy, he's a mess. Call that a Christian who's known Jesus all his life. Look, you know, he's, he's an absolute mess. What an idiot. Paul says, the opposite's true. In fact, I'm proud that my body's a mess. 
because I've absolutely put it on the line. And day by day, a weight of glory is being built up, stored up for me. And in fact, I can, I can rejoice in my sufferings because actually they are pointing my eyes at what is to come for me. I'm not looking to this life to make me feel better, to give me comfort, to give me hope. I'm looking at the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Paul says, because of all this light and momentary troubles, verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Paul looks at the future, the great body he's going to have in the future, and he looks at the present and he sees the work that's going on, even today, even through his troubles, even through his suffering, preparing him for that day and causing him to look for that day. It's great news. It's a bit like a, um, I don't know what's the, uh, I don't know Rotherham that well, but think of the most beautiful building in Rotherham. Okay? Rotherham, there's so many beautiful buildings. It's like Venice, right? Rotherham? It's just beautiful buildings everywhere, right? Same with Sheffield, okay? Anyway, I couldn't think of any beautiful buildings in Sheffield, so I just thought of Chatsworth, but which isn't in Sheffield at all. Um, if it's in Sheffield, it's in Rotherham. Anyway, think of a beautiful building, a beautiful big building, uh, but it's tired, okay? It's been a lot of weather, it's pretty old, and it needs totally re- renewing on the outside. And what do they do when they do that? Well, they cover it all with scaffolding, right? Cover it with scaffolding, and then maybe they also cover it with various bits and pieces of, um, I don't know, bits of plastic, that kind of orange mesh stuff. I don't know what it is anyway. You can't see the building at all anymore. And in fact, maybe at ground level you might get um, a hoarding advertising who's doing the work. And maybe over here at the bottom you might get a picture, an artist's impression of what it's going to look like when it's finished, and the sun is shining and everyone is walking around and it's all delightful and it's perfect. Now, gradually, as they are doing the building up, the, the boards on the outside get graffiti on them. They start to look a mess. Gradually, the wind blows. I don't know, there's some frost, there's some snow. Gradually, the, the plastic and the hoardings they've put on the outside start to rip and come apart. You can see bits of scaffolding through now. Every so often, you catch a glimpse of a workman walking across some boards at some, layer, some level. Now, what's going on with that building? When you look at that building, do you think, oh, that building was in bad shape before, but look, it's even worse now. Look at the state of the scaffolding. You don't, do you? What you know as you look at that building is, in fact, I know that because this scaffolding is coming apart, but I know that's actually a direct result, if anything, of the work that's going on underneath. And you know that one day when you look at that beautiful building... The scaffolding will be taken off and there it will be, dazzlingly renewed, just as it was made and intended to be by whoever designed it. So it will be with us, except even better. Right now, now you're going to be perfected. You're going to be like the ultimately made-over building. Paul describes it as a heavenly dwelling. But right now, it's a bit like you're covered in scaffolding, actually. It's all looking a bit tired and a bit creaky but the scaffolding hides and hides the work that is going on under the surface by the spirit of God so we need to retrain our eyes seeing the new body which is coming and seeing the inner work of renovation that's going on through our troubles 
seeing the weight of glory which is to come rather than the heaviness of the burdens which are today. That's why Paul is confident. That's why Paul can be cheerful. That's why his problems don't crush him. That's why he's so robust. That's why you can't shut him up. That's why he's always talking about Jesus no matter what happens. Because he lives by faith and not by sight. Because he's focusing his eyes not on what is unseen, sorry, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. He's looking forward to the day when he is everything he was made to be. He looks at those realities. I want to just draw a couple of implications for us of the truth of the hope of the Spirit. The first thing is it means that death has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting. We don't have to pretend that death is a great thing, right? It's sad and it's tragic. It's as a result of sin. But for Paul, he didn't fear death. And neither should we. If we're looking for the resurrection and the life of the world to come, we needn't fear death. In fact, we shouldn't. There should be something distinctive about the way Christians consider death. After all, this body will be renewed. And it's going to be better. Not only is it going to be kind of made of better stuff, but actually it's going to be in a better place. Paul says in verse 6, as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And Paul continues, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That, that, is, that is Paul saying what it sounds like he's saying. It's going, it will, I'm going to be happier when I'm dead, ultimately, is what Paul is saying. I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's a better place. It's being at home with the Lord. So as Christians, I think we just need to get better at talking about death and dying. We don't always have to apologise for being morbid every time we start to talk about death because that is the one thing that we are all called for, called to, unless Christ returns first. Death is coming. So we do need to talk about it and we need to encourage one another not to fear it and we need to encourage one another to die well. That means to die full of hope, to die full of hope that something good has happened to the body of a Christian after he or she has died. The last of the tied old scaffolding is about to be removed from the building and what will be revealed is glorious. And the other great news is it means we're free to live dangerously. We can take risks for the gospel to tell people about Jesus. We can work hard. We can put our bodies on the line. They don't have to last forever and they won't. That's the effect it had on Paul Paul was released from his fear of death to be a bold preacher and a witness to the good news of Jesus. So, what is safe and what is dangerous? Well, as Christians, we've got to turn our ideas about that upside down because our destiny is to be swallowed up by life. We are safe if we're Christians, even if our bodies are destroyed. We know what danger is, don't we? Danger is people who haven't yet responded to Jesus, not thinking about him, not having heard about him, not knowing about him, hurtling towards their deaths and their eventual judgment. And if we won't tell those people about Jesus, if we won't be missionary people, 
then we've got it totally upside down. We are acting as if we are in danger and non-Christians are safe. Isn't that crazy? We are in danger and they are safe. So we've got to stay where we are and we can leave them where they are. We're, that's, that's a lie about ourselves. We are completely safe. And it's a lie about them. They are in terrible danger. So we've got to take risks for mission to tell people about Jesus. And when we won't, it's a sign that we're not anchored in the truth as we might be. We're looking for the comfort of this life, not the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I wonder if anyone would suspect by looking at our lives that we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Would they think that about you? I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know. But the differences between Christians and non-Christians are not cosmetic. It's the difference between people looking at different worlds. Looking at this life or looking at the life of the world to come. It's totally different. Those differences should impact our most basic life decisions and priorities. Final implication. Death has lost its sting. And the second one is life is no longer a waste of time. Life is no longer, it's no longer futile. Because a lot of people, in fact I think people Paul was writing to, heard all this stuff about the body and thought, well it doesn't matter what I do with my body, actually, because I've got a new better one coming. So right now it just doesn't matter. Who cares? It's going to the scrap heap anyway. I don't know if that's a way that you ever think. I know it's a way that I... Uh, been tempted to think at times but for Paul looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come was an argument for the opposite it meant that this life matters what he did in this body was important have a look at how he continues um, from verse 9 of chapter 5 so he says we make it our goal to please him that is to please God whether we are at home in the body alive or away from it dead So whether I'm alive, whether I'm dead, whatever state I'm in, my ambition today is to please God. Why? Now verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We'll each be accountable for the things done while in the body. This body that we have today, even though it's going to be replaced by something so much better, What we do with it matters. We will each be judged according to the things done while in the body. It's so interesting that Paul says that. It's because he wants us to know what we do while we're in this body matters. It counts. Our use of these tents will be judged by Christ. Now, hear me right. If you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you need to fear judgment. That doesn't mean that you might be found wanting, not good enough, because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I think Paul is here talking about that there will be some evaluation of how you've used your body. He says, we'll receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That word bad there is a word which we might also translate as worthless. Nothing good in it. A waste. It is possible for us as Christians to waste our bodies. That is to fill our lives with things that just don't matter. You know, in the light of eternity, just 
trivial. That's just not important. That's not the same as saying that, you know, you can't watch the TV to the glory of God. Of course you can. But it does mean, I think, that over time we need to make plans not to waste our body and not to kind of fritter our lives away. This is a precious time that God has given us. These are precious bodies that God has given us. So we need to make plans not to waste our bodies. That means probably that over time, where you have choice, and some of us have more choice than others, we've got to make some plans, whether it's plans to uh, be available for things that your church is trying to do, for mission, or planning to be in a situation where you can tell people who don't know about Jesus all about him. The further ahead we plan, the more opportunity we'll have to prioritise things, not to waste our bodies. So, I think it means that we need to make plans not to waste our bodies. But, it's not only just about making plans, and I understand that the best laid plans sometimes don't come off, and sometimes we just don't have much freedom to choose what we get to do each day. But the good news is that we don't have to even plan. Because it's about making what we do today count eternity, making it count so if it's a day at Meadow Hall I don't know why you'd want to do that but some people do we can make it count for eternity we can form a relationship with a non-Christian by bringing them along with us or two or we can just use it as an opportunity to be thankful to our father if it's a day in the office we can make it count we can use it to be a good witness in how we do our job or to encourage other Christians, or to be a blessing to our towns and our cities. If today at home with the kids, make it count. Play with them with thankfulness. Parent them in a way that shows the character of your Heavenly Father. If it's a day of suffering in a hospital bed, as it probably will be for all of us at some point, we can make it count. We can be full of hope, in a God who will transform our disintegrating bodies into an eternal body to be used for his glory. We're not to waste our bodies. We're to give our bodies. We're to give our bodies. So here's the good news to finish. When Jesus was eating his final meal with his friends, here's what he said as he broke bread. He said this. He said, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. If you're a Christian, Jesus has given his body for you. You might think all that stuff about giving your body is just something you can't do. Life is too complicated or you just don't feel it or other things get in the way or sometimes you just don't care about the things that matter that much. Well, it's not you. That's true. The great news of the gospel is that it's Christ in you. You're united with him. When Jesus says, this is my body given for you, you're united with him. So his body becomes your body when you're a Christian and Jesus gave his body perfectly. In fact, the one person who in a sense never needed to give his body, never owed anything, gave it for you. And when Jesus lay in the tomb, I think Peter in his sermon in Acts 2 says that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him because the spirit was breathing life into Christ's mortal body. And if you're a Christian, it is, imp- it is the same for you as for Christ's body. It will be impossible 
for death to keep its hold on your body. Impossible. Unthinkable. The spirit will get to work breathing life into your dead body just as it did Christ's because his body was given for you. So, death doesn't have to terrify you. It doesn't have to be something we can spend our time, we need to spend our time or energy running from or worrying about. We don't need to be slaves to the culture which says getting old is bad. We don't have to worry about the hundred things to do before we die. It really doesn't matter. It's all to come. You, there's nothing, you will miss out on nothing, I promise, if you're a Christian. Because you have the Spirit of Christ guaranteeing what is to come. And your life is not futile. Your suffering is not futile. Your effort is not futile. Your work is not futile. It can count for eternity. It can matter. All the good you do will count. All the suffering will count. All the effort will count. All because of the spirit that is at work within us and can be ours in Jesus. I've just been so encouraged as I've prepared for this passage and preached it. It's been such a blessing to me. And for me, I I was sharing this with just the small group that I'm part of in Sheffield earlier this week. I kind of hesitate to say it, but it almost makes me... I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm not even going to say almost. I'm going to, I'm going to say it makes me, and then you can think I'm crazy. But I think this is what the Spirit is saying through the Word of Christ. It makes me jealous of people who suffer for the Gospel. It really does make me jealous of those people. Because I think that is... Those people, their eyes are being fixed not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Not on what is temporary, but what is eternal. They're living by faith, not by sight. There's a weight of glory which is awaiting those people and which in some way God is using their present suffering and endeavours for that. I wonder if God would do that work amongst us all so that we would be sent out in risk-taking, bold mission for Jesus, that we'd be people who were looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.